Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan and I'm joined as usual by Benjamin Red. How are you, Ben? This week, I am on it. I am excited. All of my love for cabinet has come rushing back. <laughs> it's finally time to talk about cabinet after it's formed. Yeah, this is the big episode. I feel like everything has been building literally for eight months to this point. <laughs> And now we're going to talk about it. We, we've got tons to unpack here with the cabinet formation this week. Uh, very quickly, before we get to that really big news, we got like three tiny things to mention. One of them is actually related to the cabinet formation. Marshall Billingsley, the undersecretary of state, or sorry, the assistant secretary of the treasury for terrorist financing was in town this week. And whenever he comes to town, people sort of wonder, well, what's going to happen? He came to town uh, a year ago, remember? And then like yeah. a week later, once he got back to Washington, OFAC, the arm of the treasury that deals with sanctions, announced like a new round of sanctions on, on people they said were connected to Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. And so... The question is, what might happen once he goes back to Washington? Will OFAC announce something new? Who knows? Uh, but while he was in town this week, he met with a bunch of leaders. And the, the, the one message that really came out of this was, well, you need to be careful about forming a government with Hezbollah in it, especially if Hezbollah has the health ministry, right? That, mm -hmm. that was his big warning. Mm -hmm. uh, well, of course, the cabinet was formed and Hezbollah does have the health ministry, although... Uh, it is not an actual member of the party that heads the health ministry. Jamil Jabat is aligned with Hezbollah, close to Hezbollah, but not an official member of the True. party. Uh, and speaking of Hezbollah, uh, Hassan Nasrallah gave a speech last week, last Saturday. We didn't uh, cover it because we actually, it, it happened after we recorded last week. True. He had an interview with, with, uh, with Mayadeen and it was focused on the geopolitics rather than the internal politics. Um, but he said some interesting things. Everyone was waiting for him to make a statement about the tunnels in South Lebanon and all the issue that happened with with Israel in the last couple of months. And what he said was 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 funny. He said what is surprising is how long it took the Israelis to discover the tunnels. So he didn't just like confirm the tunnels. He basically mocked the Israelis for taking so long. And he said some of them were since before the 2006 war with with Israel. Another interesting thing in the in the interview is that he focused so much on on the Galilee as a the area and and north uh, and north Palestine or north Israel that Hezbollah has threatened to uh, to liberate before and he says that all of Israel's activity on the Lebanese southern borders today are as a result of that threat and they're trying to prevent a Hezbollah intervention or a operation um, and then he mocked the Israelis for thinking that Hezbollah would depend on a few tunnels to bring in thousands of soldiers. Uh, into the area to liberate it and he said if we want to do that we won't need tunnels and he said even the wall won't stop us but then he went a bit like um and in a weird direction in, the, in this uh, th this part of the interview and he started saying look we watched a report on tv a couple of days ago about some motorcycles that can jump three meters in the air we can you know think of all these possibilities when you're thinking of crossing the border it was funny very I don't know it was sarcastic but I didn't make it didn't make any sense to me it, it's a funny image yeah yeah <laughs> Um, also on that, uh, Israel continued or resumed their, their work on the border wall this week. Um, so th this is one of those continuing things. It's going to take a really long time for them to complete that wall. This is going to be a, a story that continues to pop up in the news uh, every so often. But the other uh, small thing before we get to cabinet formation that we need to mention this week is that Lebanon actually went over a fiscal cliff on Friday. We talked about this last week because it was coming up. Uh, so if you want to hear like sort of a blow by blow of how all of this works... Go back and listen to that episode. Uh, but long story short, that the end of January, moving into February, basically Friday the 1st, Lebanon had no legal way of actually paying things. 
Well, as it turns out, the president and prime minister on Friday, after we went over the fiscal cliff, signed one of these pre-authorization documents. Uh, a source at Bob de Palace confirmed this to me on Friday that this had happened. So they are relying on this very shaky legal mechanism right now to basically keep the state functioning. But it appears as though the state will continue to function. There will no be no U.S. style shutdown, uh, as politicians love to remark here, uh, just sort of snarkily and funnily to me, like, <laughs> oh, we're not the U.S. We don't let that happen here, uh, nice. which is totally deserved. <laughs> as an American, I will say that is totally deserved criticism. Uh uh, so long story short, they have figured out sort of like a way to make this work. And then at some point laws will be passed in the future in order to go back and retroactively truly legalize all of this stuff. That's the idea. But enough about that. This week, there was one big thing that happened, like one earth shattering thing that happened. And that was cabinet formation. Finally, after 252 days uh, since Hariri was uh, appointed to form a cabinet, 254 days since we had a real cabinet, we finally have a, a real cabinet. At, at, at least, well, we, we should in a bit because they still need a vote of confidence in parliament in order to actually do anything. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. But let's get into this. Who won? Who lost? I mean, that's a, bit, that's a big question, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the question that is most difficult to, to, to answer, I guess. Okay, so let's begin with the basics, I guess. The cabinet is formed of 30 ministers, including the prime minister. Um, so 30 votes in total. And it's a small, basically a smaller version of the parliament and the major political forces. Not even major. Most political forces in parliament are represented in the cabinet. And uh, we posted uh, an infographic that you, Ben, did. Awesome infographic about the representation of political parties in parliament and in the cabinet. Yeah, it lines up pretty well. Yeah, it kind of makes sense, the projection. So each party uh, in parliament got a combination of what we call portfolio ministries and what you call ministers of state and the cabinet, according to their share in parliament. First, let's explain the difference between the two. Yeah, yeah. so as you mentioned, there are 30 ministers, but if the number of actual ministries, there, there's only 21 ministries, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got those 21 ministries and then a prime minister. And so that means you're going to have something like eight ministers of state. And and that's what we had under the last cabinet. One of those ministers of state is, is actually somewhat substantive, and that is the Minister of State for Administrative Development. Uh, it, they have an actual office. It's called OMSAR, the Office of the Minister of State for Administrative Development. The reason for the R was that it was originally reform and now it's development, but the acronym and the website is OMSAR. But the rest of these ministers of state really have no no office. These other seven ministers in the previous cabinet, they had titles, which was a sort of a new thing for a lot of these uh, ministers of state. They said, oh, well, this time, instead of just having these ministers without portfolio, we're going to give them jobs to do. And that's why we had like a minister of state for combating corruption, a minister of state for presidential affairs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All of them had something they were supposedly responsible for. Now, the, the problem is, is that that responsibility came with zero authority and, and it came with zero like consequences if they didn't, you know, get anything right. Other than perhaps public shaming, you know, like what, what did Nicola Tuani, the anti-corruption minister of state do and under the last cabinet? Well, uh, not a lot, right? Yeah, we didn't hear of one big file that he was behind. Exactly, exactly. 
So basically, a minister of state is just a political person who is in cabinet to vote on things, basically. Um, and because there is the, this person is affiliated with a political party, this means that it's part, part of the, this power-sharing system. So we need three Hezbollah votes in the cabinet, then we're going to give three ministers to Hezbollah, regardless if we have three portfolios to give. Exactly. There's no budgets that go along with these. There's nothing. There's the, these titles are just titles in name only. That's it. So then we also have, very quickly, we have sort of a stratification of the actual ministries themselves. Some are very important ministries and others are less important. You, you've got the four sovereign ministries, defense, foreign affairs, interior, and finance. And then on the next tier, you've got sort of the service ministries. There's probably about eight of those, depending on how you count it. And then you've got like another nine or 10, if you count OMSAR, like ministries that are sort of like smaller budgets, less power. Um, so this is the general field that you're going into. So when we start talking about numbers here, you got to keep in mind that while every number, like one equals one for the purposes of voting in, in cabinet, which is a really big deal, not all of the portfolios are equal. Yeah, I mean, the, the sovereign ministries uh, maybe can be seen as the ministries of politics and security and military stuff, more or less, uh, with the exception of the finance ministry. And then the the service ministries is the the ones that politicians need to you know give contracts to certain friends or to develop certain areas that they come from etc. And or, these, or or ones that just have like a lot of power like the, the the minister of justice is probably the third most powerful minister, you know honestly, yeah. but he's not considered sovereign for some weird reason. Uh, okay, so let's get to the numbers. Who won? Well, it's not a surprise. I think we knew the FPM was the biggest winner of this cabinet, right? I mean, there was no other way. The, the question was, will they get 11 ministers or 10? So will they get the capacity to block any decision by the government by having a third of the ministers or not? And when they asked this question to, to Gibran Basil, just after, after cabinet formation, uh, they asked him, does the strong Lebanon block in parliament, which is the FPM block, have the blocking third? So they asked him, should we say congratulations for 10 or 11 ministers? He said 11. On paper, he's right. And yes, exactly, because the FPM as a party has five ministries and its Armenian ally, very loyal ally so far, Tashnak party, has uh, a sixth ministry, the tourism ministry. And the FPM ministries are Jubran Basil for foreign minister, the economy ministry for Mansour Ptesh, the environment ministry for Fadi Jraisati, the energy ministry for Nada Bustani and the ministry of the displaced for Ghassan Atallah. But then you have to add to that the president's share. And that is another five ministries. Or another another five ministers, rather, and and because Aoun is the the big figure in the FPM, right? He is uh, the founder of the FPM, even though he is no longer the president. He has passed that on to his son-in-law, Gibran Basil. He is he is still an FPM guy. Like the FPM exists because of Michel Aoun. Yeah, and of course he appoints people who are FPM loyalists or close to the FPM. So if the FPM has just six for its own share in cabinet, then Michel Aoun, as president, adds another five. And so on paper, they've got 11. That's what Gibran Basile says. But, and this is a big but, a part of the president's share includes those five, includes two consensus candidates. If you remember, one of the main issues that was holding up cabinet at one point was the Druze issue, right? Exactly. Walid Jumblat said, I want all three Druze seats in cabinet. And Talal Arsan was say, saying, no, I deserve one of them. So they came up with this formula to say, okay, well, there's going to be a consensus candidate between Talal Arsan, Walid Jumblat, and 
the president and the president will it will be a part of the president's share and the president will like choose the final candidate mm-hmm. and as it ended up it was Salah Gharib the new minister of state for refugee affairs uh and so Salah Gharib was this consensus candidate it solved the Druze issue the other consensus candidate that's part of the president's share is the candidate who solved the Sunni issue uh and this is uh it ended up being Hassan Murad the son of uh, MP uh, Abdul Rahim Rad, and he is now the the new Minister of State for Foreign Trade, and both of these guys are part of the president's share. Although there is a question as to whether they are actually really going to be voting with the FPM, for instance, and it seems as though, especially in the case of Hassan Murad, that that's not necessarily the case. He is going to be voting uh, according to whatever the the Sunni six say not according to what Gibran yeah. Basile says. Exactly. So in reality, I would count this as a, a block of 10 ministers for the FPM. I think that's the best way to look at it. I, I would count Gharib mm-hmm. as a reliable vote for them in most cases, probably, because he is closely aligned with Talal Eshlen, despite him being a consensus candidate. He, and he's even said that he would vote the way that Eshlen wants him to, right? Yeah, but apart from the two... Um consensus ministers we should mention that the ministers that Aoun got or the ministers that he chose were the defense minister Elias Busab, uh, former education minister under the Tamam Salam government he chose also justice minister Albert Sarhan and uh, minister of state for presidential affairs Salim Jiraisati who also was a former minister of justice chosen by Aoun in, uh, in the former government but I think to a lot of our listeners this issue of, of Aoun or the president choosing a bunch of ministers is a bit strange, right? Because he is the eternal leader of the FPM, according to Gibran Basile's words, but he is doubling almost the number of FPM ministers. So, so we should probably give some context on that, right? Right, and, and this is it. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the in in the current context, but if you go back a few years, it, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, Michelle Aoun is really the first president post Taif to be fully you know like one party like a strong party head a strong party leader typically post if presidents have not been heads of major parties they have had sort of a, a weak popular base think of michelle Sleiman or emile lahoud uh, both of these were generals they came from the army they didn't lead political parties and so it mm-hmm. made a lot of sense for them to have a presidential share especially post Taif that stripped a lot of powers of the presidency away. Okay, well, we will let the president, you know, decide on a few ministers uh, so that so that he has some sort some say that this Maronite head of state does have a say in the composition of the cabinet. But now that we have a president who also just has, has a natural political base, it doesn't make nearly as much since but this is this is the tradition this is the way things are done and so of course the president will get a share in cabinet and it's because of what you're saying by the way that the brand Rais al-Qawi or the strong president is the main brand with which Aoun became president you know this is what the FAM have been uh, saying we want for once a strong president so when people read that this is what they should be thinking about this is the first non-consensus president it's a partisan person in power Okay, so this is for FPM. Uh, the second biggest block in, cab- in the cabinet is the future movement, uh, Prime Minister Hariri's share. So in addition to Hariri, we have five ministers representing the future movement, directly or indirectly. We have Interior Minister Rayal Hassan, Telecom Minister Mohammed Sh'ir, Information Minister Jamal Jarrah, 
and two ministers of state, one for women affairs, Violet Khairallah Safadi, and one for technology and investment, Adil Afyuni. Non-Hariri people, right? Safadi, who is married to Muhammad Safadi, a major Sunni figure in Tripoli, and Afyuni, who is representing prime, former Prime Minister Najib Miqati's Azm movement. Then we have uh, the Lebanese forces, who got four ministers, three portfolios and one minister of state. Uh, the deputy prime minister is Ghassan Hasbani, uh, former minister of health. Richard Kumajian, an LF veteran, is the minister of social affairs. Uh, we have the labor minister for Kamil Abu Sulaiman and then uh, minister of state for administrative development, Maisha Dia. Um, so one, one interesting thing about this, the LF has four ministers. The FPM on paper has six. This is a direct violation of the Marab Agreement. Yeah, because the Marab Agreement said that FPM and LF would have the same number of ministers regardless of Aoun's share, right? Exactly. So, so I mean, this is something that we've already sort of known that the Marab Agreement is dead. Uh, this agreement that brought the, the supposedly buried the hatchet between Samir Jaja, the head of the LF, and Michel Aoun, uh, the, then the head of the FPM. Who were fighting each other in the last part of the civil war. Exactly. This was the 2016 agreement that sort of brought these forces together and they were supposed to, it was this whole Christian reconciliation thing and they were supposed to work together and do all of these things. Uh, it, it sort of worked, but uh, at this point, it obviously has sort of outlived its usefulness as sort of like a technical document. Maybe the spirit of reconciliation uh, lives on to some degree, but certainly as a text, it, it's sort of a, a dead letter, right? Yeah, I agree. Um, the Amal movement of Speaker Nabi Berri got three ministers, uh, all portfolio ministries. They got the Minister of Finance for Ali Hassan Khalil, uh, who also had this ministry in the previous government, the Culture Ministry for Muhammad Dawood, and the Agriculture Ministry for Hassan Lais. And Hezbollah also got three ministers, although one of them is a Minister of State for Parliamentary Affairs, Mahmoud Khmati, and the two portfolio ministers are the Health Ministry for Jamil Jabak and the Youth and Sports Ministry for Mohammed Fnesh. And then we have the Progressive Socialist Party of Ali Jumlat, who got two portfolio ministries uh, for two big party veterans, the Industry Ministry for Wa'al Abu Fa'awur and the Education Ministry for Akram Shayib. And finally, the Marada movement of Suleiman Frangiyi got one portfolio ministry, the Ministry of Public Works and Transport, which is still held by Yusuf Inyanis, who used to head it in the, uh, in the previous government as well. Okay, so all of this means, who's the big winner? Well, obviously the FPM, I, I, I think, 10 is the appropriate number of seats to assign to them, which is less than a blocking third. They would need 11 for the blocking third, mm-hmm. uh, which is important if, if you want to sort of control what, what goes on in cabinet or, or be able to block anything that goes in cabinet or be able to make the cabinet resign if you want to, or like walk out. Uh, you need that blocking third. They didn't get that, but they did get 10, which is a huge deal. This, this is more, I, 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 I've not confirmed this, but I have read that this is, the most that any one party has gotten post Taif. Yeah, it might be. I mean, I haven't seen any, I don't remember any share that was bigger than this one. And and do you, do you remember the conversation we had just after the elections when we were analyzing results and we were talking about whether, you know, Hezbollah won or not because all of these international pundits were saying, look at Hezbollah taking over Lebanon, etc. And we were analyzing this. And I remember we had a discussion about affiliation or orientation towards uh, the Syrian regime, the position towards the Syrian regime as a determinant of like who wins. And the cabinet formation now is kind of a translation of what we saw in the parliament. Because we have, if you calculate the shares of FPM and of Marada and of Hezbollah and Amal, the allies of the Syrian regime more or less, 
you have 18 ministers so it's uh, a clear majority of people who uh, in cabinet will be making will be voting for reconciliation with the Syrian regime assuming that the FPM bloc would stay together on that issue yeah but Jibran Basil's uh, statement in the economic summit in Beirut was very clear you know we want Syria to be part of the League of Arab States Syria is the priority now reconstruction of Syria etc FPM seems to be taking a clear uh, position on the Syrian regime that is more, much more positive than than before right and and whereas the FPM's parliamentary bloc is I think a very is very diverse on the Syrian issue, you have some people who are maybe not as keen on ties mm. with Damascus uh, as, as MPs in the FPM's block. The, if you look at the names of ministers, it seems as though uh, a lot of them will vote the way that Gibran Basile tells them to vote. There's there's less diversity of opinion there. I It, it seems to me, or, or at least less uh, of a room for maneuver for these ministers. True. Um, and and two of the the share of Aoun, the president, are also close to the Syrian regime, or like uh, you know Salah Gharib being very close to Talal Islam, and then the consensus being uh, for the Sunni six, it's basically also pro Syrian regime people. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, th- I think it's important to mention as well, though, that this all sort of came together last minute, and there were some things that just sort of seemed off. Uh, for instance, we had heard and we knew. The culture ministry is going to go to Meshidia, Lebanese forces. Yeah. And and it made sense. Meshidia is a former broadcaster, former news presenter, former uh, correspondent. And she was going to be the culture minister. And, you know, it, it, it seemed like a natural fit for her. And then at the last moment, because of the these last minute horse trades that had to be made to, to make this cabinet, she ended up being the minister of state for administrative development, which seems kind of strange. In my initially, I thought that doesn't really fit. On second thought, though, I thought, well, actually, maybe it does sort of fit. Maybe she could do a lot of good uh, because maybe as a journalist, she, you know, she certainly has a lot of experience dealing with the state bureaucracy and dealing with the state. And so, actually, maybe she could be really good in this role as well. Maybe it's not as uh, obvious a fit as culture minister, but uh, maybe these last minute sort of surprises could end up being a good thing. And, and just as May Shidiak's change in portfolio was really surprising, also the person who replaced her at the culture ministry, uh, Amal's uh, Muhammad Daoud, was also kind of surprising. We'll, we'll talk more about him later. Uh, I wasn't the only one surprised. We weren't the only one surprised by the way this all happened, right? We had a major political force that was also taken by surprise, apparently. Yeah, well, Lee Jumblad tweeted uh, basically that he did not know the cabinet would be formed so quick and that the skepticism that he had expressed the night before the cabinet was formed is because he did not know the hidden details of the meeting between Saad Hariri and Jibran Basile in Paris last week. Which is nuts for a top zaim not to know this stuff. Exactly. And this and this kind of uh, fits in the picture that a lot of people are trying to uh, draw, especially in, in newspapers like uh, political analysts, Let's say that Jumblat is being sidelined from the political scene now, mainly because he is the only one who seems uncompromising when it comes to Syria. He does not seem to accept at all the fact that Lebanon will be reconciliating with the Syrian regime soon. Uh, Hariri seems a bit more, you know, flexible about that. And then except for the LF, all other major forces are kind of pro-Syrian regime in one way or another. So Jumblat is, is Jumblat and the LF are the two key political forces that are anti-Assad right now in the Syrian political scene. 
and the LF is not as significant perhaps because they do not represent the majority of Christians. The FPM does now, while Jumblat represents the majority of the Druze. And in the Lebanese sectarian system, this is what matters more than, you know, uh, the size in terms of parliament representation or cabinet. It's which sectarian group you represent. So Jumblat being kind of an obstacle in front of the in front of restoring a relationship with the Syrian regime uh, might be, as a lot of people are saying, kind of the reason why he's being sidelined. And and there's even rumors to the effect that they might be trying to get rid of the ministry for the displaced as well, right? Which which is a ministry uh, not always run by a, a, a Jumblat ally, but typically considered, you know, a, a Jumblat ministry. Yeah. So one really good thing that came out of all of this is that we have more women ministers than ever before. Four women ministers in this 30-member cabinet, uh, which I believe is twice as many as we have had in any earlier cabinet. I believe in Saad Hariri's first government in 2009, there were two women ministers, uh, Mona Afesh, a minister of state, and Rayal Hassan, uh, who is the minister of finance. This time, uh, well, Rayal Hassan is back, uh, and we got four women uh, in the 30-member cabinet. Uh, and and Rayal Hassan is also trailblazing yet again. Uh, back in 2009, she was the first woman finance minister. And now she is the first woman interior minister. So she yeah. she has now broken two glass ceilings. Good for her. Uh, she is a future movement, uh, high up in the future movement, one of the three vice presidents of the future movement. And she is also now the only woman who has headed a sovereign ministry. And she's done it twice. Yeah, so this is a step forward in one way, but it's still 13% of the cabinet, right? It's still very embarrassing. We're still one of the worst countries in, in uh, women's political representation. And if you look at the blocks in cabinet, you see that, you know, FPM out of 11, one woman. This is embarrassing. This is less than 10% of, of your share in cabinet. Yeah, and c- kudos to the future movement on this. Having two women uh, out of out of six for Saad Hariri, one third of the people that he chose, including himself, we're women. Yeah. Uh, we had news also that um, the Amal movement wanted to have uh, the daughter of Musa Sadr, uh, the founder of the Amal movement, as a minister, but she rejected the position. I don't know if that's true or that's just for media, for PR. Uh, but then this this her name was suggested the night before the cabinet formation, and then it was replaced by um, Muhammad Dawood. I mean, good intentions don't count for anything though yeah i, I, I agree. don't think hasbala still has no women ministers i don't think they're planning to have any because they announced before the parliamentary elections that women should not be in parliament so i don't think that they think should they should be in cabinet either um and the excuse obviously is that they have their house to take care of or something like that something extremely sexist that they once uh, announced stay in the kitchen yep and it was a woman leader from hasbala who who announced it um also the psp jumblas party is still doing very bad on this uh, aspect in the parliament, no woman. In the cabinet, also no woman. So in general, we're still in a really bad situation. Four out of 30. Uh, we should mention here that, that there has already been a controversy over women in cabinet and specifically the, the cabinet minister for like women's affairs. Right? Yeah. In the last cabinet, there was this uh, new title created, Minister of State for Women's Affairs, and it was headed by a man, longtime <laughs> cabinet mem- member, uh, Jean Ogasapian. He's out now, and they they brought in a woman, Violet Safadi. She is the new head of this, and they but they renamed it as well to be 
something incredibly long. I have to yeah, look the, at my notes to even see it. It's the Minister of State for Social and Economic Rehabilitation for Youth and Women. Yeah. Mouthful. I mean, the word that they use is ta'heel, which means to make someone qualified for something, you know. to It's not really rehabilitation. doesn't have the re part, but it's basically making someone good enough for society in one way or another, you know. But there's a lot of controversy around the use of that word. That's though, horrible, yeah. Because it suggests I mean, that, oh, well, they, 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 need, they need rehabilitation. They need, yeah, they need something. Yeah, it, it, it's not, it suggests that women do not need, you know, uh, these sexist laws fixed. They do not need these structural changes that they've been complaining about or they've been demanding uh, change in Lebanon. What they need is social and economic rehabilitation, which is absolutely insulting. And uh, it, it kind of reflects the mindset with which they are approaching this matter. You know, uh, women are fighting for their rights. Yeah, we see it as just a way to include them more in society and in the economy as if this is the, the big problem. And, and I think I, I think this is one good thing about this is that this was fixed like almost immediately. Uh, Thursday, this was announced. And then Friday, politicians responded immediately to this and sort of renamed things. Violet Safadi is now the Minister of State for the Economic Empowerment of Women and Youth. No more rehabilitation. Yeah. Still a bit weird to me, but okay. Um, what's weird also is that Violet Safadi is part of the National Commission for Lebanese Women. And the National Commission for the Lebanese Women was one of the first organizations to condemn the naming of the ministry. So I think the naming of the ministry was a bit of a sloppy job by I don't know who, who just named it that way and they didn't really think about it. Yeah, and uh, one other interesting thing uh, about this cabinet is that it's a lot younger than the previous one, right? The average age, you, you did this calculation, was what, 51 years? 51 years, yeah. And it's younger also than the average for parliamentarians. And it's mainly because we have four ministers who are in their 30s Nada Bustani, Saleh Gharib, Violet Safadi, and Muhammad Dawood are all in their 30s, uh, late 30s, but still. So they kind of brought the average down. And they have, we have a couple of people in their 40s as well. Uh, so in general, yeah, that's much a much younger cabinet um, than the one before, and definitely than the one before that, than Tamam Slam's government, which, was, which had an average of something like late 60s or early 70s. And, and there was also a lot of turnover of names. So nine of these ministers are returning from the last government, uh, although a couple of them have switched ministries or, or switched portfolios. Uh, Jamal Jarrah is no longer telecoms minister. He's information minister. Uh, Salim Jarrisati, as you mentioned, is no longer the minister of justice. He's the minister of state for presidential affairs. Uh, so nine of the same names. And then we've got four people coming back from before. Uh, Rael Hassan, Elias Boussab, uh, Akram Shahayeb, and Ab- uh, Wal Abu Fawur. That leaves 17 fresh faces. And, and you, you've done a little bit of digging and looking into who exactly these fresh faces are. Yeah, I mean, apart from presenting their sects and their political parties, they represent other things, right? What they do in life, um, where they come from, etc. And without going through all of these names um, and their biographers or whatever, there's a few things that we notice. First of all, is it's that very few of them have expertise that are relevant to the ministries that they got. It is the case in the case of Justice Minister Albert Sarhan, for sure, who was uh, the head of the State Shura Council and a member of that council for a long, long time, since 1977. It is the case also for uh, the Health Minister, Jamil Jabak, who is a doctor. He is he has a, med- a background in medicine. And it is the case for Violet Khairallah Safadi, who, apart from managing uh, institutions related to her husband, Mohammed Safadi, she also is a member of the National Commission for Lebanese Women, Women as we just mentioned. So she is involved with women affairs in one way or another. And at least she is a woman compared to the previous minister. 
And then we have a bunch of positions that are quite useless. Why do we have a minister of state for external trade affairs? Why it do we sounds like it's sort of infringing on a certain ministry called the Economy and Trade Ministry. Exactly. Um, and the minister is Hassan Rad, the son of Abdul Rahim Rad, part of the Sunni Six, uh, and uh, an MP from East Lebanon. But really, he's just there to be a minister. But has abs- I don't think he's going to be doing anything, to be honest, to be very, very honest. And, and with this, like we, we are coming back to what we talked about before of these like minister of state positions being just sort of like, oh, this is a title that's really sort of aspirational. It carries no budget. It carries no like real authority. Um, and so it's really sort of meaningless. Another position that was also created and a bit overlapping with the economy ministry is the Minister of State for Technology and Investment. And it's held by Adel Afyuni, uh, representing the Azam movement, Najib Miqati. And it's also, I, I, I was really surprised. Why do we have this? Is it because we're so excited about the knowledge economy or we're just trying to find something sexy as a title for a minister? And, and it also overlaps with OMSAR's responsibilities as far as modernizing the government, IT, all that stuff. But then I think what is more important than this is that certain ministries are held by the wrong people. The environment ministry was given to Fadi Jiraisati, who is a new minister, uh, an FPM minister, and he manages a real estate company. And in Lebanon, you know, we have the question of how far are we going to be expanding our construction on the expense of nature? To have a CEO of a real estate company, still the CEO of that company, being a minister of environment, is, it looks like a conflict of interest for me. Is there any sort of requirement legally for ministers to like give up their interests in companies or sell assets or do anything like that? Or can you just like be CEO of something, some company that you are supposed to also regulate or, or oversee as a minister? Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, there are so many licenses that this minister will be signing for himself if we think about it, you know. As a big construction company, he will need a lot of a lot of licenses and environmental impact assessments that will be approved by the environment ministry. And he is the minister. So I don't know legally if that's okay, but in practice, this is dangerous. And, and even if it were the case legally that he has to technically sign things over, I mean, here in Lebanon, it doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. You can sign it over to your cousin or something like that and still effectively control a company. Yeah. And then the, the, the second problem I want to mention is that they gave the economy ministry, also the FPM, gave the economy ministry to Mansour Ptesh. With all due respect to this person, he is the head of research at the Association of Lebanese Banks, and he is the general manager of France Bank, one of the largest Lebanese banks since 2005. So this is a, like a top banker. He is one of the main bankers in the country, and they put him as an economy minister at a point in our history where we have to make economic policies that the banks might have to pay for because they've been benefiting from the economic model for since the end of the civil war. Now it's time maybe they pay a little bit uh, of the cost of that. And we talked about it in the last episode and the one before, how the banks really rule the Lebanese economy and Lebanon's economic policy. And to choose a banker, a top banker for the economy ministry is not an innocent thing at all, in my opinion. I think it's um, very dangerous. But at the same time, this is just a continuation of policy for the FPM. Uh, the last minister of the economy was also a top banker, Raad Khouri appointed by the FPM. Yeah, and I guess that's why he was so excited about the McKinsey plan as a solution for Lebanon's economic policy because it doesn't harm the bankers, not even 1%. But then the cherry on top of our of the bourgeois lobby in our government is Mohammed Sher. Mohammed Sher is literally the worst person I can think of to be in power in <laughs> Lebanon. This person <laughs> is the most regressive economic business figure in Lebanon. He is the one calling for 
anti-worker, anti-poor policies all the time. He's, he wants the state to withdraw some of the ranks and salary scale, the wage uh, increases that the state gave to its workers after no wage increases since 1997, right? After all of this period, almost 20 years, they gave them wage increases uh, of 75%. And this guy wants to take it back or part of it back. He's one of the most regressive figures. He's always the one that is opposing any progressive economic reform. And now he's in the cabinet. Thank you, Saad Hariri, for this. Okay, to push back on that slightly, though, at very least, this guy is a fucking professional. I was obviously at the Daily Star when all of this happened, when cabinet was announced and everything. And I think within one or two hours of the announcement, we received in, in our email account at the Daily Star, a press release from Mohammed Shuair's press guy with the guy's CV on it. First one to do that. Like, we were all amazed. Like, oh, wow, this guy is a professional. He knows what he's doing. And to be honest, at the telecommunications ministry, that would be sort of like a sigh of relief, given recent ministers, let's say. I cannot disagree more. I mean, you're saying one side of it that to me is not so significant. How professional he is. Thank you. He's a big business leader. Of course, he's, he has a secretary who would send his CV. To me, it's just, you know, buying no, your respect to that. No, nobody else does that, though. He he's just, the only one. He, and they were on the spot. It means that, okay, maybe these people are going to be a little bit more responsive to the press, a little bit more responsive to the people. Yeah, but uh, but in terms of policy, this guy bought the respect of journalists with, with an email. But in terms of policy, what do you expect, Ben? What do you expect? He's going to privatize the telecom sector or he try to push in that direction. Which because is it's... already agreed by the entire political establishment. Yeah, but it, any profits that go to the public good from the telecom sector now, expect them to, to be to be moving into the private sector in, in the future if this guy handles the ministry for a few years. I mean, he is the most pro-privatization person in Lebanon and he is the head of the ministry that oversees the sector, the only sector that makes a lot of money for the state. Really, okay, it makes it on our expense, but it makes a lot of money. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that the telecommunications sector should be making a lot of money for the state. That is ridiculous. We pay crazy we, we pay crazy prices for internet and for basic cell phone coverage. Yeah, and this it all is goes of, to the state and they won't report no, it, it because not, they have a fucking budget deficit. No, but the problem is not that. The problem is how this sector has been managed since the end of the civil war and it is through privatization that didn't work at all through this private public private partnership thing basically that led Liban Cell and Liban Cell and Celis uh, back in the 90s to really build a whole plan for the sector based on people's um, people's subscriptions in a way that didn't make any sense and the way that made this sector um, slow and um, and our services weak and still, we're paying much more than we should. It's because of this crony privatization that's happening. Okay, if you have a privatized sector, more competition is better. This is not what I'm... I'm not opposed to that. I'm saying this is a sector in which privatization did not work at all. And we have now a person who 100% will push for more and more privatization. And this, to me, is, is concerning. Okay, fair enough. And I think that this is something that we can obviously go, like, off <laughs> into the weeds about. <laughs> But we should move on with with the cabinet. Put put this uh, debate over Mohammed Air and uh, telecoms privatization off to I don't know uh, some episode a few months down the road. <laughs> <laughs> right. But but I think that your your complaint here strikes at sort of a larger theme that 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 you see right. Uh, 
across the board. Yes, there are these new faces. There are uh, younger faces. There are women. There, it's it's a much um, more like progressive, forward-looking uh, composition of cabinet in terms of just like the demographics. But ideologically, yeah, we've got the the same like pro privatization, neoliberal policies exactly. uh, represented basically. And the interests in society that are represented today are the new economic elite who are trying to make sure that no economic reform will harm their interests. This is what I'm concerned about, you know. The real estate people and the bankers who are represented uh, by Mohammed Sher and the two ministers that I mentioned are really the most uh, reactionary force right now in, in, in the economic debate because they are the ones who don't want anything changed. Which, of course, could prove fatal if, uh, you know, bad things happen to the financial system. Yeah. If they don't if they don't make the uh, changes necessary, which I you know it's difficult to see how they could. Okay, so what does all of this mean in terms of what happens next going forward? Well, the next thing that's happening is the ministerial statement. All of these things hit the road starting on Saturday. Saturday was the first meeting of cabinet. They all got together, took a picture up at Babda, and they also decided on a committee to draft the ministerial statement. What are the priorities for this government? And so in this ministerial statement, there will be a few things for sure that are mentioned, uh, we believe. Uh, Number one is obviously economic reforms and uh, the uh, Paris 4 conference. And and this is where this is going to come in, where these, you know, uh, people like Mohamed Shuer and their views uh, could potentially uh, come into play. Exactly. Uh, And I don't I don't think that that's going to be necessarily a problem either i don't think there's going to be a whole lot of pushback or or wrangling over this one issue right most of the people in the cabinet will be broadly on board with the the sort of neoliberal plan that they have economically yeah i agree agree. uh more contentiously will be hezbollah's arms now in the previous government's ministerial statement they came to sort of a agreement a neutral language that everybody was happy with uh this could happen again uh, but it may not. It, it, if the LF decides, for instance, that they're not happy with the neutral language, which it was suggested with uh, by Meshidiat already, that perhaps they may not be happy with it, uh, then there could be a fight over this. Uh, but maybe there's just nothing. Maybe they just decide, okay, we've got neutral language, we'll move on, uh, because there are, there's, there are other big points. Another one of these big points is Syrian refugees. Probably not a whole lot of wrangling over this issue, but the Syrian refugees does play into the big issue of the ministerial statement, and that is relations with Damascus. Exactly. And we know that this is going to be a big issue because it was almost a big issue just in the formation of cabinet, if you remember. Several months ago, it started to be brought up, well, we need to take into account the future relationship with Damascus in the formation of the government. And then uh, Hassan Nasrallah came out and said, no, 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 let's back up. Let's form a cabinet first, and then we'll talk about this. Well, we formed the cabinet. Now it's time to talk about where we stand vis-a-vis Bashar al-Assad. And this, I think, is going to take most of the time of these people uh, writing the, the ministerial statement because it's not only about how to write it, right? How to phrase it. It's also what to do. What, what are we going to do towards Syria? And how are we going to make this, as usual, as we do in Lebanon, uh, make this happen without announcing it, you know? Bring back the relations to, um, to normality without making any big steps that would make Hariri and Jumblat and these other people look bad in front of their constituents. I think this is the question rather than what we're going to do. But 
in the ministerial statement they have to announce a position on this in one way or another what is this position is is really interesting question what will hariri do will he be more much more flexible than than lf or will they stand as an anti-syrian regime kind of caucus inside the cabinet with the psp people so it's 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 interesting to watch this and and as you mentioned uh near the beginning of the episode there are something like 18 ministers that are broadly in favor of better ties with damascus and 11 or 12, depending on how you count Makati, who are uh, not in favor of warmer ties with Damascus at this point. Exactly. But at the same time, this is a consensus government. So these two sides need to come together and find some accommodation. And so I I, I think that, yeah, this is going to be the big issue. And and really, it's going to be probably a question of expedience, like if, if they've got a whole bunch of other things they want to get to, well, cabinet's not allowed to do anything until they form this ministerial statement and, and get a vote of confidence in parliament. Then they can start doing things. So depending on how much pressure, say, is on Hariri to start some sort of you know economic program or something like that, you, you could see perhaps more pressure being applied or not. Now, theoretically, there is a time limit on this. 30 days constitutionally you gotta have confidence within 30 days otherwise start over again yeah however in practice that is that doesn't always happen uh at, at least three times uh since 2005 it's gone over the 30 day limit just just by a few days there was like 33 days 32 days 31 days so don't necessarily consider this 30 day time limit as a hard deadline in lebanese politics hard deadlines do not exist yeah, so now we have a new cabinet. We have some reasons to be optimistic, which is that a lot of political parties were preparing some work, uh, as far as I know, for the post-election period, some laws to be passed, a lot of laws to be passed in parliament, and this requires usually the executive uh, authority to be uh, alive, so activated, so this is good. What we also have is a cabinet that represents parliament, which means obviously zero political accountability. We have too many ministers that we don't need, we have all of these issues that have to be resolved in between among uh, political parties when it comes to decisions even inside ministries and now we rem- we have to remember what happened last year with the thing about sacking one person in one ministry and getting the approval of a political zaim because he he controls another ministry before doing that and this is going to continue right the pessimistic side is that we have a bunch of mostly incompetent people r- uh, ruling our country the optimistic side is that they need to get to work because otherwise i think people are already fed up and this uh, the cabinet formation is kind of the opportunity for the for the political leaders to reproduce the system and pretend that it's working and if they don't do things real things or at least things that people will accept as work um in the next few months in my opinion this is going to be um this is going to pave the way for more street action maybe more protests and and more dissatisfaction in general so i guess this is a point where we don't know whether we should be i don't know whether i should be optimistic or pessimistic i'm very pessimistic about things like economic policy and social justice but in terms of the functioning of the state maybe it is the time that they will put the energy into action so we'll see i guess and and just to piggyback on that this is uh this is it this is a long-term cabinet Right. Unless something happens and and it falls or whatever. Uh, But this cabinet could be in office until 2022 when we have uh, scheduled presidential elections and parliamentary elections. So this is our last hope. Like this is it. Unless something crazy happens like these are the people who will be steering the ship of state 
through through whatever comes over the next few years. Yeah, most likely. Yeah, unless something and, crazy and, and the and the wor- thing that worries me and a lot of people is that it took so long to form a cabinet. It doesn't look solid. Like you don't have a team of people like having any harmony amongst them who are ruling the executive authority. So it's more like of, of uh, just a combination of lots of different people with different interests, etc. So it doesn't feel like it's the right beginning. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't think that you necessarily could have a cabinet like what you're describing, though, un- under the current under the current circumstances. This yeah, is sort of totally. like the best. This is the best we can do. Obviously, this is the best we got. And well, now we're going to have to live with it. Unfortunately, we do. So I guess um, that's it for this week. Tune in next week for um, the second episode in our series on historical figures. It's going to be on Rafiq Hariri and it's going to be the Monday before his the 14th anniversary of his um, assassination. So um, tune in next Monday. And until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.